But this herald is not announcing good news. He's announcing bad news. He's not encouraging people to worship the one true God. He's asking people to worship an image, to engage in idolatry. And I suspect in my lifetime, we will find out who the real preachers are. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the book of Daniel and are in chapter 3 where we find that Daniel has been promoted after successfully telling King Nebuchadnezzar not only the interpretation of his dream, but without the king's disclosure, the details of that dream. Now, Nebuchadnezzar erects a gold statue in honor of the successful outcome of the dream. And we'll see Daniel and his men will be called on to worship this idol. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy as he begins reading from Daniel chapter 3, verse 2. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble, and then the guest list is given. The satraps, they were like the state governors. The prefects, they were the military commanders. The governors, that refers to the leaders of the smaller provinces within the kingdom. They're like mayors. The counselors, those were the special advisors. The treasurers, literally the Hebrew says the treasure bearers, they're in charge of taking care of the bills. The judges, they're the law bearers, they're like our Supreme Court justices. The magistrates, those are the judges on a local level. And lastly, all the rulers of the provinces. These were the people who enforced the law, the law enforcement division. The bottom line is that all the movers and all the shakers in the kingdom were invited to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Everybody who is anybody got an invitation. Verse 3. Then the satraps, the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. They, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, when you read that verse, it seems a little redundant, but it's not by accident. God does not say things because he is giving us filler. It's not like he has nothing else to say. He's repeating himself so that you cannot miss it that when the king gave an invitation, if you valued your life, you better go. And that's the point of the verse. And Daniel, of course, again, is noticeably absent. And so this is a prime opportunity for some of the leaders in the kingdom who are extremely jealous of these Hebrew people to come and attack his friends. So beyond the order, order, there's the orator, the the preacher of sorts. Look at verse 4. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigen, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. So this is the king's paid preacher, so to speak. He basically announces whatever the king wants him to say. Nothing wrong with that as long as you're announcing for the right king. But this herald is not announcing good news. He's announcing bad news. He's not encouraging people to worship the one true God. He's asking people to worship an image, to engage in idolatry. And I suspect in my lifetime, we will find out who the real preachers are. 
In fact, we already are. In one of our Baptist churches in town, they refuse now to take a stance on homosexuality. It's too divisive. They've taken a stance. And in two Presbyterian churches, they now officially endorse homosexual marriage. We'll find out who is heralding in the days ahead for the king of kings and who is heralding for the secular kings. Now, I don't know if you've noticed it, but in the last few decades, when we talk about abortion rights and lesbian rights and homosexual rights and all kinds of rights, the things that people call rights in God's eyes are nothing more than wrongs. And so notice the outcome, what happens. But whoever, verse 6, whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigen, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshiped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. The king's preacher is saying, as soon as the orchestra plays, as soon as you hear the the national anthem, so to speak, everyone is to fall down prostrate on their foreheads and worship Nabu and his prince Nebuchadnezzar. And to help you to make up your minds, the king has a burning furnace. What crucifixion was to Rome as a means of capital punishment Babylonian cuneiform instructs us the furnace was to these people. Just so that you can make up your mind, when the music begins to play, you better bow down or you will go into the fiery furnace. And by the way, the devil has always had his musicians. Music is a powerful medium either for good or for evil. When Saul is tormented by a demon, King David comes and plays godly music and the demons flee. You can tell a whole lot about a person's spirituality and where their heart is by the kind of music that they listen to. Some say, well, you know, I'm not really listening to the words. I just like the beat. Well, the devil has his beat too. And some of you are listening to music that's filled with godlessness and sensuality, and you think it has no effect on you, but it does. And I'm not speaking just to the teenagers, I'm talking to the adults at all. Some of the country music is absolutely filthy. So the devil has his people, and so the music is played, and we're plainly told that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image. Now, they're here, as you can see here, by the thousands. But there are three who refuse to bend. Now, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah have uh, been in the text with Daniel being featured. And these three men, his three friends, have been kind of in the background. But now they are on center stage, and we will see that these men, like Daniel, have convictions of their own that are based on the Word of God. So first the image is built, then the image is dedicated, but then the image is spurned. Three men clearly do not cooperate, and they stood out like sore thumbs. Notice, if you will, beginning now in verse 8. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. Now, we were introduced to the Chaldeans in chapter 1, and if you remember, I noted there that the term is used in the Old Testament both in an ethnic sense as well as in a technical sense. 
in an ethnic sense, it just refers to Babylonian people. And so Jeremiah 52 speaks of the army of the Chaldeans. You could say the army of the Babylonians. But it's also used in a technical sense to refer to a certain class of wise men, supposedly the wisest of the wisest. And these men are jealous of Daniel and his friends. If you remember from chapter 2 and verse 49, that the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. And you know, it bothered these people to no end. Here are these newcomers, these Jewish men who've been promoted once and now a second time, and they're at the top of the pack. And so they have an opportunity, especially with Daniel gone, to attack them. We see them venting their jealousy here in verse 9. Notice, they responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigen, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. They recount it very carefully. Why? Because they want to hold the king accountable. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Now notice verse 12 as they accuse these three of treason and heresy. There are certain Jews, you can almost hear their anti-Semitism. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, you know that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could have said, look, one in Babylonians, do as the Babylonians. There's 300,000 of them. There's only three of us. They could have become diplomats, but instead they become soldiers in the army of the living God. They might have said, well, look, if we go into the fire, we'll give up our opportunity to be a witness. Better to be officers in the king's service than ashes in the king's furnace. We'll compromise this one time. Or they could have rationalized, okay, we'll bow down to the image. But God will know in our hearts that we are standing up. God won't mind one little bow. No, it is never right to do wrong in order to have an opportunity to do right. Never, ever, ever. They knew they could be a witness, if necessary, through persecution. They knew like the early Christians, they could not and would not bow down. There were tens of thousands of Christians in the early years of the Roman Empire who were bloodied by the lions. Once a year, as the persecution grew, before Constantine made it the official religion of the empire, once a year, Christians had to bow down there in Rome and say, Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord. And the true believers refused to do that. They would say, Christos Curios, Christ is Lord. And so they were bloodied by the mouths of lions. Here were three Hebrew men who were willing to stand up for the living God because of what they believed. It's not always easy to walk away when people are doing what's wrong, but it's the right thing when at the office or there in your barracks they're telling a dirty joke. It's not always easy to say to your coach, no, I'm not coming to the gymnastics competition. I'm not going to play ball that morning. I don't care if it's the World Series. It's the Lord's Day, and on God's Day, I'm going to be with God's people. 
It's not always easy to go against the crowd, to drink the world's drink, to watch the world's movies. And do you know what I've personally discovered? When you take a stance for the living God, people will get upset just like these Chaldeans did. Why? Because it bothers them. When you stand what is for what is right, it is like a, a prod in their conscience. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. You don't do that in a self-righteous, pious way. But when you hold up the standard of righteousness as expressed in Scripture, the Spirit of God uses the law as a schoolmaster to lead people to Christ. And so people are not content to sin by themselves. And so Romans 1 says they know the ordinance of God, but nonetheless they give hearty approval to those who do such things. People don't want to go to hell alone. They want to take you there with them. And so here were three men who were not about to bow. They had some deep-seated convictions that came from the Word of God. But not only would they not bow, they would not bend. You see, there are some people who will initially say no to some things, but because their convictions don't run very deep, when pressure is put on them, they begin to bend. They can be talked out of it, and they'll conform to the behavior of others. Now, in this section, verses 13 through 18 deals with the king's reaction, and then verses 19 to 23 deals with the Hebrew's response. So let's first think about the king's reaction. The story given by Daniel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is unfolded on three levels concerning his reaction. First, there's the king's anger. We read here in verse 13, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these three men were brought before the king. So he's livid. He's angry. Would anyone dare defy the order of the king? He cannot believe it. And of course... These men know what the king thinks. But they're interested in what the king of kings thinks. They're interested in what the living God says. And I want to tell you this morning, moral compromise will destroy your life. And we live in a day of moral compromise. When we come to the revelation after we're done with Daniel, one of the characteristics of the seven messages Jesus gives to the church in those seven churches, is that of compromise. And when people compromise morally, they open themselves up to false doctrines. That's true not only of an individual, that is also true of a church. When, when the Protestant movement in this nation and all the mainline denominations have morally compromised on issues like abortion and homosexuality, they have opened themselves up to all kinds of gross error. And what the church is collectively is basically what we are individually. And God does not want people to compromise, and these men would not. So there's the king's anger, but then there's the king's astonishment. Notice verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up. Is it true? How could you not obey my command is the sense. He's utterly astonished. But these guys are not phased by his reaction. And so that brings us to the king's angle. Very diplomatically, he puts pressure on them. Look at verse 14, 15. Now if you are ready, 
At the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigen, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? He's using some old-fashioned diplomacy. He's putting pressure on them. And he's hoping that they are going to bend. And you can hear the, the, the change in tone in the king's voice. He's basically saying, guys, look, I value you. If I didn't value you, you wouldn't be in the place you're at. You're at the top of the pack. He wouldn't have given other people a second chance, but he wants to give these guys a second chance. I want to be very gracious to you. One final time, the band is going to play, and if you will bow down, no problem. But if you refuse to bow down, what God is there that can deliver you out of my hands Listen, God tells us that we're not to love the world. John wrote, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Friendship with the world, James says, is a form of spiritual adultery. He's not talking about being friends with the people of this world in terms of reaching them for Christ. Jesus was a friend of sinners, but being a friend of the world's values is hostility towards God. And so Paul told us as we studied in Romans 12 that we're not to allow the world to shape us into its image and mold, but we're to be metamorphosized through the renewing of our minds. And when you don't conform to the world, the world gets angry. In this country, if you refuse to bend, the world may put you in a furnace of laughter and scorn or a furnace of being ostracized from the group. When you don't do what they're doing, you're not going to be popular. But here are some men who not only don't bend to peer pressure, neither do they bend to fear pressure. And there's really two kinds of pressure that are unfolded here. The first 12 verses, it's peer pressure. But beginning in verse 13, it's fear pressure. He is trying to threaten them with their own lives. But it doesn't matter how much the king resents what they do. It doesn't matter how diplomatic he is. It doesn't matter how astonished he is. They are going to serve the one true God. This is first and second commandment stuff. Moses wrote in the Decalogue, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water below. You shall worship me and me only. You shall not serve and worship them, he said. God is not interested in idolatry. And idolatry is when you either worship a false god, and there are many expressions of idolatry. It might be some false god like Nabu or some other one like Bacchus. And there are many that are unfolded for us in the Scriptures. Or it might be greed. It might be sexual immorality. Paul calls that idolatry in the book, the letter to the Colossians. God does not want you to worship a false god, nor does He want you to use an object to worship the one true God. Because no object can begin to even express the one true God. And so here's this king. He asked, what God is there that can deliver you from my hands? 
But these men, they stand for what is right. And so now we come to the Hebrews' response. Point B there on your outline. I mean, it's a taunting question. He's challenging the integrity of God Almighty. What God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Who is that God? That's what he's saying. I don't believe such a God exists. That's the thought behind it. But just because the king does not know the one true God does not mean that the one true God does not exist. And just because the people of this world do not know the God of heaven does not mean that the God of heaven does not exist. And just because they don't understand something about the second birth does not mean the second birth is not real. And just because they do not believe there are moral absolutes does not change the fact that there are moral absolutes. And just because they do not believe that he spoke the universe into existence in six literal 24-hour days does not change the fact that he does. And just because they do not believe that there is an awful place that burns with fire and brimstone, an eternal place of judgment called hell, does not change the reality of hell. And just because our government calls two men or two women married does not mean they are married because God recognizes no such thing. And just because the world says you can change your gender, you cannot change your gender. He made the male or female. It doesn't matter what the world believes. God is clear. I want you to notice their courage. They have something to say. Almost in unison, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. Do you see what they're saying? respectfully, but with great courage, they're saying, oh, king, we don't even need to think about this. We don't need to decide what we're going to do. We don't have to have a meeting over this. We don't have to have any discussion over this. In modern language, we'd say, this is a no-brainer. We know what we're going to do. Their loyalty was to the Decalogue, to the Ten Commandments. And their hearts are rooted deeply in the truth of Scripture, which is what gives them courage. First, They were saying, basically, we won't give in. But now they're saying, look, we won't give up. It doesn't matter how much pressure you put on. We are going to be firm. We are going to be resolute to the truth. Oh, king, we will not bow down to your image. Do you know that a couple of big decisions will often help you to make a lot of the small decisions in life? I mean, if you were asked to deny Christ today with a gun to your head like some of those college students were just a few weeks ago. Say you're a Christian, you're shot. So a number of those students were shot. If if you were under the persecution of ISIS, deny Christianity and confess Allah the Muslim God is king and your head will be spared. What would you do? You wouldn't say, I hope, well, I need to go home and pray about this. There's nothing to pray about. There's nothing to think about. I don't have to think about whether I'm going to go home tonight and watch some dirty movie. Because I don't want to soil my heart. I don't want to plant the seeds in my life for adultery. I don't want the power and the hand and the fellowship of God taken off of my life. And it doesn't matter what these pastors like Perry Noble are doing using illustrations from godless movies that gives sanction to them. It doesn't matter what the rest of the world is doing. What matters is what God calls you to do. 
I don't have to wonder whether I'm going to sleep in with my family when I'm on vacation or whether or not I'm going to go to church. I don't have to wonder whether or not, oh, I can save 300 bucks if I leave Sunday morning and miss church. I don't have to wonder those things because I've made some big decisions because my life belongs to the living God. It helps me make those little decisions. I don't have to wonder, even before I was a pastor, whether I was going to be a part of a local church where I use my gifts and abilities as God commands us to do. Because of some big decisions, I know what I'm going to do in the everyday stuff. So here's Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, and biblical archaeology tells us that there would have been approximately 300,000 people down on the plain of Dura. But they are three and 300,000. Listen, it doesn't matter what the majority is doing anymore. It doesn't matter though the fact that Christianity is changing in America. And now all the new young pastors say, go out and have some booze. It's okay. And preachers like me are legalistic. It doesn't matter what the majority is doing. Look, there is coming a day when by the billions people will give allegiance to the Antichrist with his false morality and his false theology. But truth does not change. It doesn't matter what the majority is doing during the Roman Empire when Theodosius the Great was emperor. There was a theologian and bishop a pastor in the city of Alexandria by the name of Athanasius who defended the Bible and preached the Bible. He was a great man of God in his day. And the emperor did not like what he was preaching because it crisscrossed with his own morality. And so he called him and he said, Athanasius, don't you understand? The whole world is against you. To which he said, then Athanasius is against the whole world. Pressure did not move Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Even when the whole world says the king is right, we will worship his image, they were not about to. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, was called to appear before the Diet of Worms there by the Roman Catholic Church. And they asked him to recant his theology that a man was saved, justified, by grace alone, through faith alone, that good works did not help save you. He taught they were just the fruit of salvation. And they wanted him to renounce that. And so they threatened to burn him at the stake, to which he wrote, My cause shall be commended to the Lord, for he lives and reigns, just as he preserved the three Hebrew children in the furnace of the Babylonian king. If he is willing, unwilling to preserve me, my life is a small thing compared with Christ. Expect anything of me except flight or recantation. I will not flee, much less recant, so may the Lord Jesus strengthen me. We need some people with that kind of backbone today who know what the Word of God says and who will live by it. To listen again to today's study from the book of Daniel, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order the CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program DAN4. Tomorrow we'll conclude our message entitled, Faith in the Furnace. Join us then. 
as we search the scriptures.